Envision yourself in your high school lunchroom. You have your tray in your hands as you quickly survey the tables. There's the jock table, the stuck-up table, the brain table, and so forth, covering every social order in your school. In blessed relief, you find a neutral table, when all of a sudden, Adam sits next to you, with his seeming endless source of corrective information. Now, do you leave or remain? Adam Conover for the entire hour. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. It's not true that humans only use 10% of our brain. No study has ever shown or even claimed that. It's just something people say for no reason. Touching baby birds doesn't make their mothers reject them. There is no medical reason to drink eight glasses of water a day. Undercover cops don't have to tell you they're cops just because you ask them. Cops are allowed to lie. George Washington Carver didn't invent peanut butter. And Thomas Crapper didn't invent the toilet. Albert Einstein didn't fail high school math. The Great Wall of China is not visible from space. Adam Conover was born in Smithtown, Suffolk County, Long Island, New York, and raised 22 miles to the east in an area known as Wading River. It actually borders on two towns, Riverhead and Brookhaven. Adam's parents were, and moreover are, scientists. David and Margaret, yes, one a marine biologist and the other a botanist. Now their son Adam may have been, shall we say, a bit socially awkward, at least by the measure of his schoolmates, you see, Adam had a propensity to offer unsolicited facts about a large array of subjects in an unexpected, punctuated fashion. Sometimes annoying, but unquestionably always enlightening, he parlayed this talent into social capital in high school and at Bard College, but most significantly on stage as a stand-up comic. Dedicating himself to YouTube's College Humor channel, Conover became... Well, the key breakout talent, culminating, in fact, in a TV series, true TV show, Adam Ruins Everything, whereby he routinely divulges psychologically disquieting information that one would perhaps rather not know. And yet, like consuming sweet and sour gumballs, you always want to have just one more taste. Well, fortunately, we have that opportunity for yet further taste because he has ventured into a new endeavor a podcast entitled Factually. Adam Conover, welcome to Watching America. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I want to ask you about your, your early days. Um, uh, your parents were scientists and, uh, and still are, presumably. Uh, did you grow up in a household which had seaweed strung from uh, the chandeliers, possibly? <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to envision yeah. what it was like. Yeah, not quite. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, it was a very scientific household. Uh, my dad was a uh, active marine biologist at SUNY Stony Brook um, doing research on uh, evolutionary biology and fish. Uh, and yeah, some of my earliest sense memories are going to my dad's fish ecology laboratory, which was this uh, sort of very salt-encrusted lab on the Long Island Sound by a marsh, which was full of these huge fish tanks of swarms of tiny fish swimming around. And uh, where they would, you know, they would grow the fish, breed the fish and measure them in order to uh, figure out how certain kinds of size selection would affect their uh, growth or their sex selection. Uh, my dad actually uh, had some prominence because he uh, demonstrated that if you select for the largest fish, the overall population of the fish gets smaller, which has like an effect on, you know, fishing. If you think about fishing laws. Uh, that you know, normally you're only allowed to catch fish if they're up to a certain size, right? Or if they're over a certain size, which means you end up pushing down the size of the entire population. Um, uh, so I spent a lot of time in that sort of nitty gritty science environment. Uh, 
And yeah, that was a that was a lot of my upbringing. I can imagine you taking pilgrimages out to Montauk Point. Did you do that with dad? Yeah, we did actually. You know, my dad was a huge fisherman. In addition to being a marine biologist, I never liked fishing, so I had a lot of you know, a lot of weekends with my dad out on the Long Island Sound on his little fishing boat. You know, be an all day trip of driving out there, putting the boat in the water. Uh, you know, tooling around in the in, in the bay or in the sound, uh, fishing in the sun, uh, and. I mostly would bring a book along and try to read <laughs> rather than actually fish because uh, it wasn't quite wasn't quite my thing, you know. And of course, I was a surly teenager as well. I, I you know, uh, I had the feeling of being dragged along a little bit. But now those are some very happy memories when I think back on them. I wish I had participated a little bit more. Uh, yeah, so it's one of those things <laughs> more enthusiastically, but. It's one of those things, hope you're enjoying yourself, Dad, and then you turn the page. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you come from a heady family in general. Your sister also has a PhD, and then you went yes. on to Bard College. Uh, in pursuit of going to Bard College, you, you, you obviously had already established a, a desire and a taste for comedy at that point. Were you comforted by the fact that Chevy Chase had already gone there before you and uh, <laughs> the fifth Baron, Christopher Guest as well, of Spinal Tap? Oh, yeah, Christopher Guest did go, didn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. He's also a baron. Personal... He's a legitimate baron. People don't realize that. He's a baron in, He's the, a baron. in the United Kingdom? Yes, his his daddy, the fourth baron, and he had, uh, up until the late 1990s, he had all the rights and privileges thereof to go into the House of Lords and to sit and uh, to be part of Parliament. I had no idea. Yeah, most people don't. He was born in the United States, but his daddy worked for the United Nations, you see. And so um, <laughs> so he was born in New York. But so uh, our beloved Christopher Guest is actually British-American. Wow. Uh, if only we could all be so lucky as to see, be See, now you've got some more information. Um, I just gave you. No, most people don't know he's a baron. <laughs> then you can use that. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, look, I'm more of a Christopher Guest fan than a Chevy Chase fan, uh, to be honest. Chevy Chase, I also believe, I think he might have dropped out. I think he was one of the folks who dropped out of Bard College. Bar Bard has a, uh, a, a famous reputation for famous dropouts um, who went but did not complete school there. Um, well, that, that's the like uh, Edgar Allan Poe at the University of Virginia. <laughs> it's the, right. the most famous and, and, uh, and hailed uh, dropout. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's you know, it's an incredible school. I really uh, found myself there, and uh, you know, it's it's where, in many ways, I, I became the person that I am. And and I've often thought of myself as as trying to, in my comedy, extend the same opportunity to to think that deeply and that freely to folks who weren't as privileged to be able to attend you know, an, an expensive, uh, American private college. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, a it, you know, it's has a reputation as a, as a hippie school or as a, you know, kind of out there school, but it's also extremely, uh, rigorous and yeah, it's an incredible place. Well, the, the founders of Steely Dan went there as well. I mean, it's just so culturally yes. for a small school, it's, you know, it's, it's really quite tight. Steely <laughs> Dan went there. One of the members of the Beastie Boys went there. That's I forget right. which one. Uh, uh, Ronan Farrow uh, was uh, one. It was one, there at the same time I was, although he was a child prodigy. So he was like 15 and we didn't see him much. Uh, the rest of us <laughs> normal students. But did, did uh, Mia yeah. show up on Parents' Day? She came to our graduation. Um, oh, wow. uh, so, so yeah, Ronan would have been the same year as I as I, don't, I am. I don't. And, you know, I don't presume you saw Woody. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, I don't think he was uh, invited to that blessed <laughs> yeah, event. Yeah, it's been um, a, a, a tad awkward to say the least. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, when did you know that you were comedic? Oh my gosh! I mean. Well, the odd thing is, you know, most of the time, uh, I, I think a lot of comedians can relate to this. Uh, I would do things that I thought were funny or say things that I thought were funny, but I would only get like approbation. Oh, wait, so approbation is the wrong word. Approbation is positive. What's the opposite of approbation? Um, uh, disdain and, uh, <laughs> and derision, stifling derision, derision. Yeah. From yeah. other people. Oh, my God, Adam, you're so 
why are you so loud? Why are you so weird? Why are you doing that? You're being disruptive. That was my experience of it. Well, they, they said that of Elvis, too, when he was in high school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's very common. And I ha and I actually had to get over that when I. Well, so when I was at Bard, uh, one of my friends started a sketch comedy group and I joined the group because I had always loved comedy. And, and I sort of felt, oh, I have comedic ideas like I have an idea for a sketch we could do, etc. But I actually didn't perform at all for the first year because I thought, well, I'm not a performer. I'm I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't like be in front of other people. And I think that came from years of being told to hush up um, and, you know, being scolded for uh, that kind of behavior. And and before it like came out of me, you know, um, mm -hmm. one of the odd things about comedy is that to do it, you sort of have to say the first thing that comes to mind for a long time until the first thing that comes to mind gets funnier, if that makes sense. Like, yes, you it does. Discovery. You can't, you can't sit around. Yeah, you can't sit around going. Uh, well, what, you know, like, like, uh, censoring yourself and trying to figure out what the best thing to say is you just sort of have to start talking <laughs> and, uh, adjust as you go and hope it comes out funny. And that means that in the early years, you're saying a lot of really not funny things that are irritating to people. Um, and, uh, so I had to, and you know, I was scolded for that and I had to get over that stifling, um, in order to sort of find myself as a, as a comedic performer. Um, but that was at that time at Bard was around when I started thinking, oh, like comedy is something that I I like doing and could do. And so we in that sketch group is called Old English um, was the name of our group named after our favorite brand of malt liquor. And we did uh, comedy shows just for the college, right, for the students at the college. And they were very quickly like one of the biggest things on campus. We would probably pack like half the student body into uh, the room where we did the performances. We would do like two hour long shows. It was insanity. Uh, people didn't have very much to do <laughs> in upstate <laughs> New York. And um, uh, and we started making videos uh, that were, uh, you know, on the very, very early internet. This was pre-YouTube. This was about 2003 and four that we were making videos. Bard had a, uh, a media lab that was full of Macintoshes with, um, uh, Final Cut Pro on them and mm -hmm. you know this hardware had just come out where you could film your own videos right. um, and import them easily into the Mac and edit them on a nonlinear editor on Final Cut Pro like that it, it was brand new stuff I, remember, I often say yes. I owe my career in comedy to Steve Jobs and the rest of the people at Apple's decision to put a Firewire port on the Mac, which is what allowed you to import footage from those cameras. They said, let's yes. turn these computers into prosumer video editing stations. And because they did that, I taught myself video editing and uh, comedy, you know, video editing for comedy. Um, I was basically entirely self-taught. I sort of handled all the post-production for our, for our group. Before you got to the stage of, of video production and you were just initially doing it live, had you, at least by osmosis, uh, growing up on Long Island, heard of the Groundlings, heard of Second City? Um, obviously, you would have seen Saturday Night Live. But did you even go further back, perhaps? Were you ever exposed to an Elaine May and Mike Nichols album of comedy or sketch comedy? <laughs> None of those were my influences, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I had not heard of Second City or the Groundlings. I was not – I actually – was not a Saturday Night Live watcher um, as a kid. I had friends who were, but I it's just sort of whizzed past me. I mm -hmm. never really watched it. Um, I always had slightly more abstruse tastes. Um, I was a big fan of British comedy. Um, like I was, uh, maybe this reference will hit for you. I'm kind of guessing it might. I was a, a big fan of a British radio show called The Goon Show. Absolutely. Uh, that yes. Yeah. Th Where did you hear I the Goon Show in, in the States? I mean, <laughs> did, did you get, you know, I, bootleg it was copies on, or something? It, it was on cassette tape at my local library. We wow. would go to the library uh, every, you know, a couple times a week. And I think my mom checked them out first and I heard yes. them and I was like, oh, this is great. And for folks who don't know, I mean, I'm not, this is nothing for you, but I think for your audience who might not know, this was a post-World War II uh, radio show uh, that was entirely sort of theater of the mind, right? Like um, Spike it was Milligan, Peter moving. Sellers. Yes, Peter Sellers would be the name you recognize. That was sort of where, at least where he got his start in my imagination, um, as far as as far as I know. Yes, and it correct. was almost like 
it, it was very much like a pre uh, similarities to Monty Python sensibility, but much faster and very manic. And so they would do these incredibly fast scene changes. They would be like, let's go there. Whoosh, and then they're there, you know, right. and yes. um, they're these recurring characters and, and extremely silly comedy. And I loved it. I would listen to those shows over and over and over again. Um, so, you know, I really picked up, very strange <laughs> comedy influences. I was a huge Douglas Adams fan. Um, yes. A lot, lot of British comedy. Um, I watched a lot of. Uh, I watched a lot of cartoons. Oh, I, I watched a lot of. I watched a lot of Comedy Central, um, which uh, in the late nineties uh, had a lot of very interesting, strange comedy. They were playing a lot of Kids in the Hall, which I watched mm -hmm. religiously. Right, Canadian program. Uh, yeah. Yep, uh, incredible sketch comedy show. Uh, they played a lot of Dr. Katz, um, Mystery Science Theater 3000. That sort of comedy was what I absorbed. And of course, they played a lot of stand-up as well. What's interesting is like you like the kids in the hall, and that was also produced by Lorne Michaels, who also did Saturday Night Live, because mm -hmm. Lorne Michaels, of, yes. as you know, being a Canadian. Um, will you make the transition to uh, being bolder? And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's something that happens to people who are misunderstood. They either go one of two ways. They either become wallflowers and they, you know, they, they recede and they become like crabs in a shell and they close off or the other go the other way and they develop a, a kind of a curious uh if you will courage where the attitude is like well screw it if you're not going to like me i'm still going to be who i am and i might as well go with it and i see that as a pattern adam in your life now we're not there yet i'm going to talk <laughs> about you pitching but you have this healthy and i want to emphasize that word healthy disregard for whether or not you're accepted did that culminate from your <laughs> high school experience you know I have to say, I don't actually feel that way in my life. I, um, uh, I'm very concerned with whether or not I'm accepted, frankly. It's always been a, uh, a preoccupation of mine to a certain extent. Like a lot of my experience in high school was not understanding why people didn't like me, right? <laughs> Being yeah, like, where, yeah. where, where, where's everyone going? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing my best here to, to make friends. Why are people walking away? <laughs> and <laughs> what did you and, conclude? And, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I was baffled at the time when I was in high school, I had no idea. Um, I think that, you know, as I got older, uh, I, I was just socially awkward. Like I, I, uh, had trouble relating to people. I don't feel that I fully flowered and became an adult until I started doing stand up in my mid twenties. Um, because mm. stand up is intensely social and I, I went from feeling like, the odd one out at every party, which is not a unique experience. So many people feel that way. But, you know, I went from feeling, oh, I'm different from other people. I don't relate to other people. Everyone else is normal and I'm weird to feeling like totally at ease in, in, in any social situation. And, and I think stand up is what did that for me finally, because stand up is so intensely social um, and is sort of putting yourself through a gauntlet of uh, <laughs> acting in a way that other people will respond to positively, if that makes sense. The feeling of killing on stage is uh, so physical to have a whole room full of people laugh at what you're saying and, and you know, to have them hanging on your word and, and uh, to have them come up afterwards and say, hey, that was really great. Um, it's like a physical, it was like a straight shot of social approval, like right to the heart, you know, and I experienced it as, as being addictive, right, as being something that I really uh, craved and wanted uh, more of. And, uh, you know, at the same time, bombing feels bad, right? Bombing feels extremely bad. You're, you're going up there and you're saying something that you hope will get a reaction and you get nothing, you know, and, uh, it's a physical reaction in the other way. You know, you, you, uh, sometimes you flop sweat, your face flushes, you lose your place. You, uh, you know, you, you start to have a physical reaction to that. Um, but you know, you go do an open mic and, hey, you do well the first time. Oh, great. I'll do this again. That felt great. You, you do an open mic the second time, if you bomb. It feels really bad. Um, then you do it a couple more times and you realize, oh, this d doesn't actually hurt me. It's, it doesn't actually hurt. Like, it, it, I'm okay the next day, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and you start to realize that bombing isn't that bad. And, you know, what I told myself is, well, I have to get through the bad sets to get to the good sets. I have to I have to bomb in order to get to the uh, the in order to get to the good feeling. And that's what that's what kept me coming back. 
coming from the family that you did, uh, all achievers, when you announced, or they began to at least smell in the breeze, that you had these notions of pursuing comedy, uh, very often at no, no rate of pay whatsoever, did they ever lovingly sit down and, and sympathetically say, now, Adam, we know you have these aspirations for comedy and what have you, but your mom and I, we have steady jobs, your sister has a PhD, perhaps you, well, might as, you know, turn us under and, and look in another direction. Did you ever get that message? No, they were they were very supportive, but I was lucky enough to have some amount of success uh, uh, pretty quickly. Um, yeah. You know, when I, I moved to New York with, with the other guys in my sketch comedy group, um, and, you know, when I got there, I, I, you know, had enough computer literacy. Again, I had been doing post-production. I had designed our website. Um, I pretty quickly got a full-time web design job, um, in New York in like 2006. Um, and I only kept that job for close to a year and then I quit it in order to do, make videos for our comedy website for no pay full-time. And I think they probably, when I told them I was going to do that, had a little bit of a question mark. Well, you're giving up your health insurance in order to, uh, in order to <laughs> make make videos for your website. But we had had stuff go viral by then. Um, we had, you know, we're performing at, you know, theaters unpaid, but at theaters in New York. Um, and then within a year, we had had something on the front page of YouTube and. Uh, pretty quickly, we were making videos for uh, a very early video comedy website called Super Deluxe that only lasted for a year, but it was mm -hmm. like paying work. So, you know, that was very, very lucky that we were in the right place, right time. You know, right now it would be extremely difficult to to do the same thing because online video is one of the most competitive right. fields in media. Yeah. And it's very easy to do it for a long time and make no money at it. But at the time, very few people were trying to do it. So we were at the very beginning of the Wild West um, and I think my parents are able to tell, oh, he, he cares about this and he, he, it, it's an actual vocation that he is able to put his energy into and that pays off. Um, and so they were, uh, supportive of it or if they had, if they were dubious, they, they kept their concerns to themselves. Um, I also had the enormous benefit of, uh, not having any college debt, you know, which is, wow. uh, you know, my, my, my parents were not, yeah, it, uh, it's, it's an incredible privilege that I had. Mm. My parents were not wealthy by any means. My, my dad was a college professor and my mom ran a small, uh, science museum at a high school, like a one room science museum at a, at a local high school. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, you know, that, that's a middle-class living, but they lived ben below their means. I only appreciated many years later. Yes. Uh, they lived below their means to, to be able to afford my sister and I to go to college without taking massive loans. Um, and, uh, that was, you know, an incredible, uh, incredible gift that they gave me because it gave me a lot more freedom when I left college to be able to, you know, uh, not be tied to a desk and instead be able to, you know, make these videos while doing uh, freelance work. You know, it's a real it's a real shame and a problem that comedy in America essentially requires about a decade of free labor before you can get paid even 50 bucks a show. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, really deleterious to our ability to have, you know, different voices in comedy um, to have, uh, you know, voices of more mar marginalized folks, of folks who don't come from such wealthy backgrounds. If you look through successful comedy, you'll see a lot of people born with silver spoons in their mouths. Um, and I don't put myself in quite that category, but I do acknowledge the, uh, you know, advantages and privileges that I've had. And that's part of why, you know, one, one thing I've tried to make a mission as uh, I've, you know, uh, risen in comedy is to create more opportunities uh, behind me and, you know, open more doors for folks and figure out ways to um, uh, correct that imbalance uh, so that, you know, more people are able to make their way into the industry from backgrounds who haven't been able to in the past. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am delighted to have as my guest today, Adam Conover. You know him, first of all, from Adam Ruins Everything. But he now has a new venture, a new podcast entitled Factually. I want to talk to you, Adam, about uh, control uh, as an artist. You are an artist. Anyone who creates 
media of any sort, and certainly you have a graphic sense because you're doing graphic design in, at one time in your life. And as an artist, the the issue of control versus having to render it to other people, which can feel rather uncomfortable, uh, and depending on the production standards and the money involved, dictates how much control or creativity uh, you you have in the process. When you were doing your initial comedy channel, um, you basically, I presume, in agreement with your flatmates, uh, had a lot of control, correct? Yeah, you mean in in uh, oh, my original sketch group, Old English? Yeah, we had. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, there was there were control struggles between us, but yes, certainly. Okay, <laughs> as a group, we did. So when you go from being, uh, you know, in the college humor channel and uh, on YouTube, and then you transition to the big boys, and you're doing all these pitches, and I, I really want to hear about that. So you've got this premise, you've got this idea. It's already been proven in the in the petri dish that this is going to work. So you go to various people and you had this tremendous frustration. You know, typically I've been through this. You go into offices of, uh, you know, huge, huge corporations and there's someone called Sasha who offers you a drink and you wait to go in and you go in and you got to do your pitch and everything and you don't know how it's going to go. The most frustrating thing to hear is like, we love it. Great. Good idea. You know, but this season it's not really our market. Da, 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 da. You went through that a lot until you finally got True TV's approval. Um, during that time, you have said that you obviously wanted to sell your show, but you had that degree of like, you know what, I'm not going to try and be what I'm not. But in the process, once you got the show, did you feel that your choices were curtailed ironically, even though there's money, even though there's 120 people on your production staff, even though you're working with the creative department, did you feel anyone clipping your wings to any degree? And if so, how did you handle it? Uh, I'll be honest, not particularly. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, we were quite fortunate to, we did, you know, Adam Ruins Everything is a show where we talk about advertising, false advertising, uh, misleading business practices. We did a segment, our season finale last year was about, was an episode where we reckoned with the fact that uh, our show is on advertising-supported television, despite the fact that we're always criticizing advertising. Yes. Our show is on advertising-supported yeah. television. And uh, we went into detail about the one or two times uh, that the, well, more than one or two, let's say four or five uh, times that we had to adjust some content uh, because there was an advertising concern on the network's part. Now, that's not it's not as though it never happened, um, but it was pretty rare. And the amazing thing is that the network uh, was fine with us talking about that on the show, right? With dramatizing right. the network's note, network notes process between us and them. Um, so, you know, the most dramatic of those was that we wanted to do a segment. I, I really wanted to do a segment about the NCAA, college athletics in America, and how uh, what an incredible injustice it is that the athletes aren't paid um, and the roots of that. You know, the roots of mm -hmm. that are that, like, uh, the the man who came up with that system um, eventually went on to <laughs> denounce it and compare it to plantation slavery um, after he left the NCAA um, because of, you know, how incredibly unjust it is. And there was never a uh, ethical reason for it. It was always just to control costs. Um, and, uh, you know, when you look at the amount of money being made mm. by everybody except the players, uh, it's unconscionable. And on the players, by the way, are risking their lives when you consider, you know, traumatic head injuries and, and CTE and things like that. Um, and that, that was a perfect story for our show. What is True TV broadcast every March? March Madness, right? The NCAA right. basketball tournament. And, and so that was the one case in the history of the show where the president of the network told me, I said, we're going to push this until the president of the network tells me no. The president of the network said, we're not, we're not airing this episode. And I said, okay, I can't fight any harder than that. You know, I can't, I, uh, but I fought as hard as I can. Mm -hmm. So that's how I sleep easily at night and we'll pitch something else. Um, so uh, that was a disappointment, but we then talked about that on the show. We talked about that issue um, and what that meant for our show. And so on balance, even though it's not as though you know, we never had to have those conversations. We were able to make a show that addressed issues that you very rarely see talked about on advertising supported television. And I hope our show proves that uh, those sort of conversations are possible, you know, it, despite the capitalist media economy that we live in. Um, 
You know, as far as the more nitty gritty stuff, uh, yeah, sure. When you work for a network, you have to take network notes, and that can be a frustrating process. But the, uh, you know, frankly, it, I I think it's a lie that you know the artist always knows what they're doing, and uh, if you just let them do whatever they want, and you know they never receive any friction, that's how you get the best work. Because there's friction everywhere, right? Um, right yes. y- even if you're Pablo Picasso putting art up, you're dealing with what the audience thinks, with what you think. You have creative blocks. You, uh, <laughs> you know, you have your collaborators who you're working with. There's always some amount of negotiation with the outside world to figure out what the final product is going to be. In fact, that's the process of making it. Right. Um, That is like going from the pristine idea in your head to the instantiated thing that is, you know, incarnated in the real world in physical form requires countless compromises and adjustments along the way, Um, you know, and the network is one of those. Right. As is the budget, as is the audience's expectation, as is the physical limitations of reality. (laughs) Right. Such as schedule or weather or time or any of those things. So, you know, I've never seen it as, oh, if people are telling me what to do. You know, if I have to listen to that, then that's going to somehow pollute the work. I think that's a very childish way to look at art making. If you're just joining us, listening to Watching America, I am Dr. Alan Campbell, and you might recognize this voice if you are familiar with wonderful shows like Adam Ruins Everything, and moreover, with a new podcast entitled Factually. I'm speaking, of course, with Adam Conova. And the thing I want to ask you now is about what some people have termed as as media fragmentation. Uh, You know, I taught broadcasting. My background is in film and television. uh, And I've taught broadcast history production. So that's why I know everything you're talking about in in relation to editing facilities and so on and so forth. Yeah. And journalism. And um, and now it seems like everybody essentially has has a podcast. Everybody and his uncle um, is, you know, setting up with with a very simple dynamic microphone of, you know, uh, they've just ordered it online as a package and they've got a little mixer and now they're, they're off and running. You have ventured back into that. Now, there's such a extreme evolution and gallery between people doing it. Uh, you have Joe Rogan, of course, who's just signed a $100 million contract with Spotify. You've ventured into these waters. Um, where do you see yourself as branding and positioning yourself within such a uh, a vast market, both in terms of broadcasting and narrowcasting? <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, there's certain values that I stand for um, that, you know, inquisitiveness, uh, questioning what you think, you know, um, uh, people who like me like to learn things and, uh, uh, you know, are, are sort of indefatigably cu- curious, uh, and they also like to laugh. Right. And so, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's the market I'm going for. Right. And I think that's a huge number of people. Um, I think that, uh, most of the time there's a tendency, uh, especially in mass media to look down on the audience, to say people are too dumb for this. Yes. Uh, people need it spoon fed to them. They don't right. actually want difficult information. That's not true. If you ask people, Hey, do you want to know like the real truth? Like it's, it's difficult, but I think you're up for it. People say, hell yeah, sign me up. Right. Yes. That's my audience. Yeah. I think that's yeah. almost everybody. So yeah, I mean, media fragmentation is real. Um, uh, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because the door is wider open. It's it's much easier to, you know, the means of production has been liberated and given to the people, right? We can all make Absolutely. our own uh, media now and uh, spread it far and wide. What you don't have anymore is, you know, everybody's watching Johnny Carson because that's the only show on TV, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't have that, like that level of fame is harder to achieve now. I mean, Joe Rogan, to take an example, is like, I mean, people love what he does. He also happened to be one of the first people doing it. He started his podcast way, way back in the Wild West years. Um, and that's true if you look at so many of the you know, largest voices in new media are, are literally the people who got there first. Um, and, you know, once it gets more crowded, once the railroad goes through the Wild West, right, it's harder to make your way. It's harder to have that big first mover advantage. Um, but, yeah, I mean, at the same time, it's like the audience... Uh, there's an ability for the audience to find you because they like what you do and to build a community um, around a 
uh, you know, a specific uh, brand that appeals to those people. What do you think of the marriage between the video and the audio? I mean, I've always thought, I mean, we can go back with the cliche that radio is the is the theater of the mind, etc. But I've always found the spoken word audio to be far more intimate than the visual. It's not that I've got anything against the visual. I mean, I, I, I've edited films and uh, avid suites and the whole thing. I love the visual. I, I, I teach aesthetics. But there's something unique about the human voice. Um, this might be uh, an interesting facet for you because you do have a visual brand, Adam, which is very evident in your in your style of clothing. Uh, you are a <laughs> dapper Dan, to use an old expression, and um, uh, delighting in, 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 in if you will, an uh, expression of color. So, I mean, just as Tom Wolfe had his white suits, there is a particular Adam Conover look. Do you worry about losing things of that nature somewhat, dealing with, strictly with, with audio? I don't think so. I mean, I, look, I work in multiple uh, modes simultaneously, right? I love podcasting and I love uh, I love listening to podcasts and I love producing them. You know, I, I love the way that audio uniquely uh, one of the things I think about it is that it it replaces your brain with someone else's brain. Right. If you're listening to your favorite podcast with your yes. favorite host talking to somebody, your own internal monologue stops for a little while. Right. And instead, mm -hmm. it becomes Mark Maron's internal monologue. <laughs> I, and, you know, uh, maybe I wouldn't prefer being Mark Maron than I would prefer being myself. But it's nice to take a break from being me for a little bit. Um, and I like being able to provide that to other people. Uh, and, you know, there's this sense of in podcasting that you're just hanging out with that person and the guest. Right. So right. what I do yes. on my so factually, you know, we bring on experts from uh, from around the world of human knowledge. We had an, uh, a, a fascinating entomologist on last week who told us about why he loves studying insects so much. We have uh, just had Michael Greenstone, the eminent economist, on to, to talk to us about uh, how economics affects COVID-19 and these topics. And so a lot of times we're getting this feeling of, oh, my God, I'm sitting here with this person who's so fascinating. And, you know, I'm sitting right across the table from them. This is the best bar conversation uh, I've ever been a part of. Right. Um, and that's uh, one one form of media I like doing. On the other hand, uh, I think that there's incredible opportunities still in visual comedy. Right. So much of comedy is uh, uh, on television is so static. They point a camera at some funny people, but the camera doesn't do anything interesting. Right. They're they're mm -hmm. using so few of the colors in the box of crayons um, that that are afforded to them by uh uh, by the medium. And one of the things I love doing is using those tools as much as I possibly can doing every possible, uh, you know, visual gag under the sun, fascinating transitions. I pop in and out of frame, uh, sketch comedy characters appear and disappear and using those tools to explain our point that we're making, um, is, you know, to make it visual and stick out to you. Right. Um, is something that, for some reason, I've been doing it for five years. I'm still the only person doing it. Um, and so that is the thing that I feel I, I bring to the media landscape that nobody else does is that I do funny, visual, informative, uh, informative comedy. Mm -hmm. um, and I do both those things, that and podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't regret losing one or the other. They're just, just different mediums, both of which I enjoy working in. Well, when you speak to your agent, I mean, does he speak of you almost in the third person, you know, as far as a brand? And I don't mean that in in a uh, in negative fashion, but just a recognition of like, okay, who is Adam Conover? How are we going to present Adam Conover? What's best for Adam Conover? So when you speak to Joel Zadak, um, what are the what's the nature of the conversations you guys have? I mean, that's, yeah, that's occasionally a, a way that, you know, when you're talking about presenting yourself, you think about uh, what uh, what face you're presenting to the audience, certainly. Um, that's part of being a performer, you know, is uh, you are, when you're doing stand-up comedy, for instance, you're simultaneously thinking about your own experience and you're thinking about how the audience perceives you and trying to give them a particular... Uh, impression of you and in stand-up comedy you want that to be a very honest impression um, but it's also like a facet of your personality that you're trying to hold up and hold the light and heighten and make clear to them and um, the next level of that is thinking well what does that represent to them right uh, and why are they going to be attracted to come back to that 
again and again. You know, if you look at, for instance, like John Stewart on The Daily Show, mm-hmm. he was like an avatar, an avatar of frustration and rage for the audience. You know, he would watch what was going on in the news, going like, "What the hell is going on here?" Right. Right. Um, and that that's a way that we all feel, and that's echoed. And then we, uh, uh, you know, go back to the show again and again because he represents that for us, and we find that relatable. And and you know, in addition to all the other incredible things that he's doing comedically right in addition to how funny the show is and how much you learn from that show you know that i mean his 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 daily show is still the uh the the top of the mountaintop for comedy for me and and really one of the things that that formed my uh perspective he's my johnny carson figure in in many ways um and so you know for me it's a matter of again inquisitiveness and curiosity and and learning and wanting to know more people have that deep need inside of them and when they watch me they see it you know that's a way for them to to exercise that part of them as well and so that's the you know the the face that I often choose to present but when I do stand up comedy I'll adjust it and sometimes I'll be a more traditional stand up comedy uh, a person where I'm frustrated by something that you're frustrated by too, right? Right. Um, yeah. And that's a way that I work as well. Advice time. Adam, you are sure. speaking, we'll assume, to young persons. Well, I, yeah, I don't even want to make that just as a limitation. Anybody of any age who aspires to get into the entertainment industry, you know, how do you get started? The proverbial question. But besides not the specifics of how to get started other than just do it, which always seems to be the, the true remedy, just jump in and do it somehow you can. What advice mm-hmm. do you have for those timid souls who have perhaps had a uh, history of uh, receiving a litany of what's wrong with them, and yet they think that there's something within them that actually could be marketable, is worthy, and could even entertain an audience? What would you say to that individual? I'm afraid the advice is do it. <laughs> like I, I mean, it, it it truly, it truly is. Um, to do it is to do it is to do it. Uh, especially as regards stand up, for for instance, specifically. Like like one of the beautiful things about stand up comedy is that if you uh, if you go up, uh, what what we call going up. If you go up a couple times a week, right? If you go up three mm-hmm. times a week. Even if it's at open mics, right, which is how I got started, doing open mics in New York City, um, you're a comic, right? You might be an open mic comic. You might be a bad open mic comic, <laughs> even, yeah, yeah. right, especially when you're starting out. But you're a comic, right, because that's all it is to be a comic is to do it, is to get up there and do it. And, you know, when people ask me, how do you get started doing stand-up, I say, look, it doesn't matter what I tell you and it doesn't matter how many books you read about doing stand up and it doesn't matter how many YouTube videos you watch about like tips and things like that. And it doesn't matter how much you practice your set in the mirror and it doesn't matter how many times you've rewritten it. You go up there and you do it. Uh, if it, you know what I tell people is go up and say, you're going to do it three times a week for a month, right? At the end of that month, you will realize that everything you thought about it before has been obliterated, right? (laughs) Any thought that you put in, any thought that you put in before the first time you got on stage about preparation, you're going to realize was completely irrelevant because every, because now that you've done it that many times, now that you've done it, those, uh, what is it? 12 times I just assigned you to do, um, like everything uh, that you've, you've realized what the challenges actually are and what it actually is like to do it. You know, it's like, if you were, if you were, you could read books about riding a horse all day long, right? right? Yeah. But until you actually get on the horse, you don't know what it's like to be on a horse, and you don't know, you don't know what adjustments you you need to make. You don't know what the challenges are. You don't know what the feeling is. How do you avoid people stealing your material? Assuming that you have initially even anything that good, have you ever had anyone steal your material? This is what this is what I'm talking about. If you, if you, people always ask us about stealing your material. If you did stand up, as I assigned you just to do, you would never ask this question because you would realize that stealing material is not really a concern <laughs> because because your material is not good. <laughs> it doesn't stealing material is something that so few comics actually worry about. It it, okay. it happens vanishing. It happens vanishingly rarely, and um, it's 
uh, it is handled uh, mainly through social ostracization and social norms, right? Okay. Comics uh, don't want to do it, and uh, they because there's social punishment for doing it. If someone is perceived as doing it, it you know is very reflects very negatively on them. So most comics go to great lengths to make sure that they don't do it, and and you know uh, I've had comics approach me and say, oh hey, I heard you do a similar joke about this. Uh, are you doing that on TV or have you done it on TV already? Uh, because if you have, I don't want to do it because I don't want to be seen to be doing the same premise. Or you talk about, here's how I handled it. And then they say, oh, here's my version. Oh, yeah, that seems different enough, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. It's not the, it, here's the difference. <laughs> the difference between a really great comedian and a mediocre comedian is a mediocre comedian says funny things. A great comedian is a funny person. And they are funny no matter what the hell they say, right? And no one can steal you. So the the emphasis on having your idea be stolen is a uh, is a misplaced one. This is also true in like screenplays. Like a lot of like beginning screen screenplay authors are like worried that someone's gonna like steal their premise. Right. But someone who you know an experienced screenwriter knows. If you have come up with a premise, so have 200 other people. There is no such thing as an original premise because there are millions Precisely. of people trying to write screenplays. Yeah, exactly. The difficult part is executing it, right? right. Is, uh, is executing it in an interesting way. Um, so, you know, if you're focused on someone stealing your idea, that's, uh, that's a misplaced focus. Um, the other thing I'd say is don't go to a comedy club. Comedy clubs are bad places to get started. Go find an open mic that another comic is running at a bar somewhere at a bar back room or a cafe or something uh, along those lines would be what I would recommend. Why is comedy club bad? I'm, I'm curious about that. You know, I uh, I'm fortunate enough before COVID nineteen that I uh, I I finally have started getting booked in some comedy clubs after doing you know comedy for for ten fifteen years. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started out, I avoided them because uh, they uh, tend to attract comedians who want to suck up to a booker in order to get booked. Um, they tend to have really sort of toxic scenes around them where, uh, you know, people are sort of jockeying for position. Um, and, uh, to be honest, not at every club, but at a lot of those clubs, sometimes the bookers are, you know, they wield power. They, they hoard it and they use it in order to take advantage of people. Right. And I was like, that's a bad scene. I don't ever want to be associated with someone who's just like hanging around at the bar to try to talk to the bigger comics and try to get booked on the show. I want to go to where the comedians are, right, um, who I respect. And uh, so every, at least New York City, I don't know if every city has it, but New York City and many other cities have what we often call an alt scene, which is uh, a scene where comedians are putting up their own shows at small theaters, you know, black box theaters, bars, cafes, things like that. Anywhere where, you know, you, you, you sort of develop a sense as a comedian, you walk into a space and you go, oh, uh, this would actually be an OK spot for a comedy show. Like if we put some lights right there and put up a microphone and put had people sit there. Ceilings are kind of low, rooms the right size, you know, and so shows just pop up. And, uh, you know, you do it organically. You go to open mics, you uh, see other comedians, you figure out who you think is funny and friendly and kind um, and who's doing it the right way. You befriend those people. You say, hey, what mic are you going to after this one? You tag along with them. You know, they say, oh, hey, your, your set was actually pretty funny. You know, my friend books a show. Do you want to do that show? Yeah, sure, totally. Then you're doing your first show and it's for a couple people. It's unpaid, you know, but you start to, you know, slowly but surely do more shows than open mics, right, <laughs> after a while. Um, and uh, uh, you start to develop your chops that way. So I'm wondering if you as a comic, would you like, for instance, to have a crack at drama? No, not particularly. I mean, if if there was a, someone came along with a great script and said, hey, would you like to be a part of this? We wrote it for you. I'd say, yeah, sure. Hey, why not? Right. But um, I the work that I'm doing now is the work that I want to do um, is my calling my uh, uh, you know what I so you're in the find sweet interesting spot. and yeah I think so I mean I would like more people to see it and uh, you know I want to expand and and grow what I'm doing certainly I mean currently I'm you know, I, I'm uh, uh, trying to prove to the industry that uh, what I do on Adam Ruins Everything is is more than just a show, but it's a it's a format and it's a genre, right? That like informational comedy mm -hmm. is 
uh, a way that uh, we can convey any type of fascinating information. That it's not just common misconceptions, which is what we do on Adam Ruins Everything, but that we uh, can, you know, bring that it's a tool that we can use to bring uh, knowledge to people who crave it. Right. That, um, you know, if you read, uh, you know, think about the last, you know, weighty nonfiction book you read, you know, that that blew your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That made you go, oh, my God, that's fascinating information. Why doesn't everybody know this? Right. Well, the fact is everybody wants to know it. (laughs) They they would love to have that information. The thing is, they're busy. Right. They they have kids. They have a job. They don't have time to like sit and read that same nonfiction book. And guess what? You probably don't have time to read a lot of the other books that you want to read. Right. Uh, You you managed to scrape out time in your life to read that one thing. But there's so much more that you want to know about the world around you. Um, And, you know, the the style of comedy that I do, what I'm trying to do is is uh, use comedy in order to bring that knowledge to people in a fast, funny way that makes it go down easy, but still gives them respect for the complexity of the issue. Um, and uh, uh, that's something that we can use to make all types of information uh, funny and accessible. Um, and it's not the case that people only want to learn about grisly murders and, uh, you know, food and, you know, the other stuff that you see when you open up a streaming service and take a look at their documentaries. You know, they want to learn about like the real, they want to learn the real facts. They want to learn, they want depth. They want nuance. They want revelatory information and that we can bring that to them with comedy. And so that's my mission is to, is to prove that as widely as I can and to, and to expand that. And and I'm looking, you know, I try to do that through every, uh, form of media I have available to me, whether it's television, whether it's podcasting, whether it's live performance, you know, I'm, I'm doing that in my standup now as well. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to spread that to the world. And so, yeah, sure. If someone wants me to do a movie in my spare time, yeah, why not? But I'm not sitting around going, uh, Oh God! I wish I could get out of comedy and do movies instead, like sure. um, uh, like like some comics seem to. Adam Conover, I am so glad that you've been a part of Watching America. Regarding the new <laughs> podcast, factually, where can people track yeah. it down and find it? I mean, anywhere you get your podcast. We're on Earwolf, is the name of the podcast network, but it's on uh, Apple Podcasts and Google and and anywhere else you might want to subscribe. Very good. Yeah. And we'll also see you in uh, reruns, I presume, of uh, Adam Ruins Everything. Yes, it's on True TV, it's on Netflix, and it was just added to HBO Max as well if you want to get on the newest streaming service. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Well, Adam, con over. I am so delighted for your, uh, for your sense of humor, your dedication, legitimate and serious, ironically, dedication also to um, the, if you will, depositing of knowledge in the most delightful way into minds all across America. <laughs> Thank you, sir, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Blessings. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.